This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Kate Moss, and it's my enormous pleasure to be here uh, to talk to the wonderful uh, Shami Chakrabarti, but also my mate. Um, and thank you all for coming in from the sunshine uh, to take part in this event. Um, I'd also particularly like to say thank you to the Open University. It's part of uh, their programme of events here at Edinburgh. And also to Joe Ross, who is interpreting and signing for us during this session. Uh, what Shami and I are going to do is talk as if you weren't there, um, privately, but in public, for about half an hour, and then there will be plenty of time for questions at the end. And then Shami will be sh signing copies of her book in the signing tent right next door. Um, so just a tiny bit of background, as if you don't know. Um, Shami Chakrabarti, CBE, um, has been Director of Liberty, the National Council for Civil Liberties, since September uh, 2003, having first joined as in-house counsel in 2001. A barrister by training, she worked as a lawyer in the Home Office from 96 till 2001. She is Chancellor of Essex University, an Honorary Fellow at Mansfield College, Oxford, a Master of the Bench of Middle Temple, and Honorary Professor of Law at the University of Manchester. Shami was also one of eight Olympic flag carriers at the 2012 London Olympics opening. Exactly! That is, one of, that is a round of applause before we've even started, I think. And it was actually, I think, I was watching on the telly, uh, but it was the only time I'd seen her in a white rather than trade black black <laughs> outfit. Um, her My first greatest athletic achievement. It was <laughs> <laughs> you didn't drop your corner, love. I mean, that was the thing. Um, the book that we're going to be talking about this afternoon is On Liberty, which was published by Penguin last October and was part of the celebrations, the anniversary, 80th anniversary celebrations of Liberty. I'm also um, delighted to say that Shami was the chair of judges for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction 2014. And as many of you will know, that was the judging panel that awarded it to the very great Ali Smith. <laughs> so that... That was, you know, a masterful stroke. Um, <clears throat> Shami, we're going to talk about so many things this afternoon, but I think the thing that struck me most reading the book uh, was the fact that you started work at Liberty on the 10th of September, 2001. And on the 11th of September, 2001, you went into work and then you turned on the television like everybody else and saw that first plane going into the two towers. Now that is a pretty epic beginning to your career, a liberty. But before we talk about some of the issues, can you just tell us a little bit about what it felt like being in a place like Liberty? You'd swapped for the amazing home office for this, as you put it, rather tatty office around the back of a, a chip shop in, in uh, SW1. And then this extraordinary thing that will change the world happens on day two in the job. Well, I don't want to scare the audience, but I do seem to sometimes be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right, I'm off. I'm <laughs> sort of, this is you know, quite a full, about 570 capacity here. So we better learn that the emergency exits are there. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I don't hope I'm not a Jonah or anything like that, but, but, but you're quite right. I worked, um, I was called to the bar and, uh, and then I worked in the Dark Tower, otherwise known as Mordor. <laughs> Abandon all hope you who enter here. And I did, I, I'd worked as a Home Office lawyer for the great liberal reforming Home Secretary Michael Howard. And, um, I've heard of him. Heard yeah. him. And, uh, and, then for, and then for Jack Straw. And then I went to work at Liberty and, yeah, my second day was, was the day that changed the world. It changed the world in so many ways, but it also acted as a catalyst for things that were, for undercurrents that were already there. The authoritarian arms race in British politics had already started. There was all, already, you know, the, the ill treatment of asylum seekers and, and divide and rule and otherness and all that, all that stuff. But it was a very strange emotional moment because I had literally left the world of security for the world of liberty. I had friends and colleagues in the Home Office and I thought that might be a target. It, w it was, um, I didn't know it at the time, but I was pregnant. And there were all sorts of things um, going on. And I did feel, 
depressed initially, as I'm sure, but I'm sure everybody did. I'm sure you can, you can remember where you were when 9-11 when happened. It's one of those moments in an adult's life. I think probably everybody over 30 now remembers where they were when that happened. And I remember thinking, Shami, what have you done? Is this really the moment to be leaving the Home Office that defends security, to be going to a place that defends civil liberties? And I'm glad to say that very quickly I understood that I, I had done the right thing because it's when fear stalks the land that we most need, I think, those values and power needs to be held to account. Did, did you know that it was going to have the most significant effect on not, not just that country but the whole world? Because I think all of us probably remember that. But I can only remember looking at it and thinking, oh my God, those poor people. I didn't have any bigger context. It was just an emotional response. But you, there in the office, did you think, you know, this could be the worst thing for all these other reasons? Was it clear straight away? Not on day one, but I would say certainly within a few days or a couple of weeks, we knew. I don't, I don't know how people remember this, and we, perhaps we all have different perspectives on it, but I think there was a very small window of opportunity on both sides of the Atlantic. There were people in the US saying, why do they hate us so much? What is going on in domestic policy, foreign policy? What, you know, there, was a, there was a moment of reflection, and then it passed. First the reflection, and then the revenge, and then you know, the real wars, and then the and then the meta, metaphysical wars on terror at home and on abroad and goodness me we, we know about the foreign policy disasters that um, that were in fact there's a, there's a wonderful um, satire that I saw here in Edinburgh last night um, Blair, when Blair met Bush and Bunger have, have any of you seen it <laughs> you know it's, it's 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 actually great it's a very funny satirical view on. On, on, on the war on terror abroad, but of course my work has essentially been on the war on terror at home, the clampdown on civil liberties, the rise of Islamophobia, the uh, denigration of fair trials and legal process and legal aid, the death of privacy. That's been a, that's been a massive um, uh, product of 9-11, of but also, not, it's not just 9-11, it's also the growth of the technology the two things have sort of coincided. Because mm. this is cool technology. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, we fought identity cards and we won. However, in your handbags and in your breast pockets, you are carrying devices that the state did not force on you. You pay for the privilege. How many of you have a smartphone about your person right now that reveals your location data? Which website? Yeah, which websites you've been looking at? So there are people now who know that you are sitting in a tent in Edinburgh with the second most dangerous woman in Britain. <laughs> I, I did say that we'd uh, we'd get to that because we there is a trade subscription issue here because in the programme Shami is described as the most dangerous woman in Britain. The title's been stolen. Stolen. <laughs> and you know who it's been? A, a lovely, charismatic political upstart otherwise known as the First Minister of Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> and I, no, she's, she's, she's charming, but, but the... But she's nicked your moniker. She's, she's stolen my title, and the other objection I have <laughs> is that she's even a few years younger than me. <laughs> it happens, doesn't it? One minute you're up and coming, and the next you've been and gone. <laughs> but one of the reasons um, that you wanted to write the book was to try and put together this sense of all the different things yeah. that changed from that single moment. Yeah. So looking at them, sort of separating them out, there is an overarching narrative. But to start with this idea of th the war on terror and the way that that narrative started to play out. You talk in the book, you quote the Norwegian prime minister who had a very different moment after the terrible killings by Breifik. And he said, you know, more democracy, more openness, but not naivety. Mm. So just talking about the war on terror, how did that start to play out that you saw with the people well, you met that we then all see later in the newspapers? Well, Kate, you're a best-selling writer and this is a book festival. So why don't we just start with the words? Why don't we start with the concept of a war on terror? You know, when you, when you do my job, 
there are certain words that you should never use because you'll never get taken seriously. One of these words is Orwellian, and another one is Kafkaesque. Um, and, and actually, women writers need adjectives too. That's something that we should think about because I think that Dickensian is not is not Elizabeth Dickinson. It's somebody else. <laughs> but um, but to me, Orwellian. You know, this idea of things being Orwellian is not actually about whether you have 20 CCTV cameras or five in your street. Orwellian, to me, conjures up the idea of abuses of language that lead to contortions of ideas and ultimately abuses of power. So something like, and this, you find this in his great essay, The Politics of the English Language. Start with the language and the ideas, and then you'll see how power is abused. A war on terror. What is a war on terror? A war against an abstract noun that describes political violence that has always been part of the human experience. I'm not justifying it, but I'm saying that there will always be some people, for whatever reason, who um, perpetrate political violence. And if you go to war against terror, that is a war that goes on forever. And during a permanent war, the idea is people are going to give up their rights and freedoms until the war is over, but the war is never over. Now, you could say that in World War II, um, you know, people in the UK didn't know when the war would end. And they did have to, they, they, there were blackouts, there were ID cards, there was rationing, all sorts of, there was internment, all sorts of compromises were made to people's rights and freedoms because it was World War II, and they understood that. And that's part of the trade that they did with their, with their leaders. Winston Churchill went to the House of Commons and passed all sorts of emergency laws and said, I look forward to the happy day when I can come back and hand these powers back. You don't get politicians doing that very often anymore, right? But, and people didn't know when that war would end, but they knew that when it did, they would be able to verify the end of the war with their own senses. The bomb stopped falling, there's a peace treaty, there are visible signs that citizens can, can verify. A war on terror, how do you know when the war on terror is over? Because a Clint, President Clinton the 23rd or Bush the 45th says, one more push, guys, and the war on terror is over. And until then, put up with less privacy, less free speech, less access to justice, and that's... I think the terrifying thing, that is the evil genius of those speechwriters in the White House who coined this phrase, the war on terror. And, um, and, 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 and it goes on still. And in terms of the way that these things play out for liberty and the, um, the way that your organisation is involved and, and fights against that, do you feel that you are in part always trying to correct... Um, a media that misrepresents or is given misinformation, individuals that misrepresent or are given the wrong information. Do you feel that uh, you're always trying to get background that has been lost before you've started to speak, as it were? It's, um, it's, 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 it's a very good point, Kate. It's a permanent challenge. You know, are we always fighting the alligators and never draining the swamp? Mm. Always on the back foot when they come for more and more freedom and they're passing more and more draconian laws? Or do you ever actually get the opportunity to build a more positive argument and vision of what, um, what you know, a, a liberal democracy that is at peace with itself and the world and diversity, what that might look like? I mean, to some extent, that's one of the reasons for writing a book rather than a press release. You know, I've been, I've been writing sound, but you've been writing wonderful books for many years, to, and they've, caused, they've brought so much pleasure to people. I've been writing sound bites, <laughs> because that's what you have to do in the news media when you're constantly, you know, fighting back against, you know, the appalling treatment of asylum seekers or other vulnerable people or the imposition of identity cards or whatever it is, and you get that much space. You could call it modern political poetry or not. <laughs> But it, it, it was a great opportunity to, to actually get a bit more, but not that much more. My 13-year-old son says, Mum, you wrote a short book with large fonts. <laughs> <laughs> and even bigger ideas, maybe. But whatever, he he's, you know, he's sarcastic. But uh, I don't know where he gets it from. Um, but, um, but yeah, we, we are pushing back. And it wasn't just 9-11. The seeds were there before, the great authoritarian arms race. Two guilty men started it. Michael Howard, Tony Blair. 
they decided that they would fight over this, who can be the toughest, who can be the toughest on immigration, asylum, you know, crime, tech, whatever. And it goes in a particular direction. And what I, all sorts of things are happening in our country and countries at the moment, and I hope that at least there is a pause for thought now with politics in Scotland and elsewhere in the United Kingdom. There is a moment of opportunity to just pause for thought and think again about the wisdom of this, you know, this prison population that's out of control, the way we treat our young people who are denigrated almost as much as asylum seekers. So many things have just drifted off in a very harsh and um, inhumane direction. And of course, you know, the lack of internationalism. One of the best things about, you know, the coming out of World War II, coming out of the Holocaust and the Blitz, is that people slightly to the left of politics and slightly to the right of politics of all the great world religions and of no faith at all, all came together and said, there must be human rights for human beings all over the world. Not privileges for freeborn Englishmen or Americans or whoever, but human rights just because you're alive. And that is what has been at stake. That's ultimately where this destructive authoritarian conversation has been heading. And I hope now that uh, out of enormous adversity, there's a moment of opportunity to change. So j just uh, pulling from out of that, this link between the language, the so-called war on terror, um, the way that people, individuals are denigrated, certain groups become mm. less valuable than others in the way that they're yeah. presented. And of course, we're seeing this very clearly at the moment about asylum seekers. You have a very moving moment in the book when you talk about your father, a conversation you have with him when there are two young men who have stowed away underneath a plane and one has died from hypothermia and one has survived. And your father, who of course has come to this country in the first place, says, I will be ashamed if this young man is not. Now, what does it, what, that, that's some years ago. Yeah. So do you think that there is an active uh, destroying of certain groups of people, whether it's refugees, whether it's people It could people be refugees, faith. it could be... In order to make it easier on to... The, yeah. People on your, you know, on every... Again, this was Blairism, wasn't it? On every council estate in the country, the human beings are divided into two hermetically sealed categories. The decent, law-abiding, hard-working people. Have you heard that phrase? These decent... I'm for the decent, law-abiding, hard-working families. So who's going to stand up for the scum of the earth? And is there such a thing? You know, and it's like in, in house number one, the decent, law-abiding, hard-working families, they're never touched by any problems. They don't have a lot of money, but they brush their children's hair as they head off to cello practice, right? And then right next door, the neighbors from hell. And nothing good will ever come of them. And it's as if, it's as if you can literally divide people in that way. And all that antisocial behavior agenda was part of that. Set families and communities against each other. Divide and rule, you know. And really, are there really families and communities of whatever class anywhere in these islands who haven't to some extent been touched by by what? By mental health problems, by substance abuse problems, by, you know. This idea that you know we can divide everybody into the good and the bad, and we don't need you know we can be harsh, and we don't even need fair trials. That that's something that I try to touch on in the book. It's um, ultimately, it's I think the secret to human rights is other people's children. You know, we all love our own children, but can we can we love other people's children? We all love our own human rights. It's other people's that are a bit of a problem. Right now, for a few more minutes, my speech is free. Yours is a bit more expensive. And the key to the kingdom, it seems to me, is ultimately empathy, you know, caring about other people's rights and freedoms. Because I tell you, they all come to me when they're in trouble, including MPs with expenses problems. <laughs> Seriously, I've had them all at my door because everybody wants a lawyer and everybody wants access to justice. Everybody wants the Human Rights Act, including the right-wing newspapers when they get into trouble on free speech grounds. Then they'll all take human rights. It's just other people's that they want to take away. But, I mean, it's, it, it's a return to a very... It's the traditional Victorian attitude. It's Mayhew, isn't it? It's the deserving and the undeserving poor, that there are two types. So do you think there is, if you like, across all of these things, the same pathology, which is the divide and rule, the idea that 
we who sit here are, are worthy of support and those who sit over there are not. Do you think that there is a broader... Absolutely. Absolutely. But is, are they, is it a conscious political thing, do you think? It's both conscious and unconscious. Um, I think that the world is shrinking and interconnected mm. and it is run by fewer and fewer powerful people and they're internationalists, make no mistake. On their Lear jets and in the first class lounges, you know, they don't, you know, they have the, they have the Amex cards and the, you know, they have the passports that really work. So they will be internationalists so that you'll have, you know, free movement and markets for the super rich, internationalism for, for, for money and markets and criminals, and then nationalism and division amongst ordinary people who so need to be united around their human rights protections. That's, that's my fear. Does that mean that there is no point or power to politics? If you take that logically, does it mean that the, the game, as it were, that we're all involved with matters nothing if you're not one of those people with the money at the high table? No, regardless? because I think, look at what people can do. Look at what people are doing even in this country at the moment. They are bucking the trend. They are, you know, I think that the two main, the two main parties in the UK um, took their constituents for granted for a very long time. And, you know, I have friends who are, who are lawyers who work in family law and in criminal law, and they present me with statistics that apparently a battered wife will take the beating 30, 40, 50 times, but in the end, she gets up and she walks. And maybe, this is, maybe that analogy works for communities and constituencies who felt let down and ignored by their political representatives over many, many years. And now they have got up and they've, you know, and they've gone different ways. And, you know, some of the kids are going green. Scotland's gone to the SNP, whatever it is. But it does demonstrate that people can organise. And be, whether you agree or disagree with the particular programmes and the, you know, it does demonstrate that there is a, there is a point to politics. I want to be optimistic because I wear too much black and I make everybody miserable and it's a lovely sunny day outside and there is hope. I once went to one of these festivals in Bristol and at the end of my sort of rant about civil liberties, a very charming woman, she didn't do this in public to embarrass me, but she came up to me and said, Shami, that was a lovely speech about the war on terror and all these terrible things that are happening to our speech and our conscience and our liberty. But please do remember that Martin Luther King never said, I have a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been, trying to, I've been trying to hang on to that one ever since. But one of the um, things that you, you do in the book, which is, is right but very bold, is that you actually, at the end of the book, you print the Human Rights Act. And that made me think two things. Firstly, that, forgive me, but many of us, at least, have never read it from cover to cover. And when I started to read it, almost immediately, I thought, oh, my God. Uh, you know, the language started to defeat me almost straight away, you know, the consequences of language and actually what was said on the page. But it was the day after the book was published, your book on liberty was published, that... Mr. Grayling stood up and said he was going to try to get rid of the Human yeah. Rights Act. Did you know that was coming? Was that part of this? I thought it was coming, but I didn't realise how soon. And of course now, you know, coming up for a year later, we've had the general election and we have a Conservative majority government. Narrow, narrow majority, but nonetheless committed to scrapping our Human Rights Act and possibly pulling the United Kingdom out of the European Convention on Human Rights. And there are people in Russia who have made public pleas saying, if you do this in Britain, what will happen in Russia? You know, the whole post-World War II system of international human rights protection could fall like a house of cards if we don't make a fight. I mean, more optimistically, there are, you know, you know, in Scottish politics, people have committed to defending the Human Rights Act, in, you know, in Northern Ireland and elsewhere, but it is a fight. It's, it's a mm. tough old fight, but you, know, you were talking about putting the Human Rights Act at the back of the book. I insisted on that because we're having an argument about a very precious document that so many people haven't read, including the politicians and the journalists who pontificate about it. But, you know, as my son says, it's a short book. And I said to, to my editor at Penguin, can we put the full text of the Human Rights Act? That'll, be it. That'll make it worth it for the people to have it. 
And he said, uh, okay, Shami, but given your book is so short, shall we, shall we edit the Human Rights Act? <laughs> I'm like, no, Tom, no, that's what, that's what the government wants to do. They want to replace it with a British Bill of Rights, quote-unquote, with common sense. Oh, sorry, British Bill of Rights and responsibilities with common sense which basically means they will decide as politicians who is worthy and who is unworthy of rights. Not, nothing for foreigners, nothing for people who want to sue the MOD, including these, some of these poor kids who get used and abused in the military and then don't get protection. And they want nothing for bad people and nothing for so-called trivial cases which I find the most intriguing of all the proposals. They're going to, the politicians will decide what is a trivial case. I think, you know, Rosa Parks, what was her problem? Why didn't there was plenty of space at the back of the bus, for God's sake? Anyway. Sometimes, often in the press, um, particularly when you're being attacked, and sometimes it's quite systematic, but other times it is straightforward. The question that comes up over and over again, um, and I would like to think some of this is devil's advocate, but I, I'm not sure. Often what the charge against um, yeah. you and liberty is, well, this is all very well, but there are some terrible people who are doing terrible things, so what should we do against the people who do want to take away, quote, our civil liberties by attacking us or bombing us? Or what should we do to protect the hardworking family that lives at number one from the person? So that is the usual way that you are challenged. What do you feel about that, that issue about how you do legislate for the people that do want to do ill versus the greater good for the people who don't? I'm become very boring and old-fashioned and traditional. If somebody, if you suspect somebody has done a wicked thing to their neighbour or whoever, you come up, you do the work, you come up with the evidence, you charge them, you prosecute them, you convict them, and if necessary, they go to prison. And there is no substitute for that hard work. Why? Because it is the secure way to protect people from a dangerous criminal, but it's also the way not to alienate people and communities. You know, you have never, you have never seen somebody, um, I would challenge you, who has been through a trial process and been acquitted, standing on, you know, standing outside the old Bailey or wherever it is here in Edinburgh, saying, "Oh, justice is 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 a travesty." They're saying, "Thank, thank goodness for my lawyer, for my community, for my solicitor. It was a terrible experience, but I knew, I knew I would be vindicated, and I have been." And every time that happens, of course, it's been a traumatic for the for the wrongly accused person, but it's still a vindication of democracy and the rule of law. Contrast that with people who are just disappeared and sent to Guantanamo or sent to Belmarsh or, or prosecuted in secret courts and nobody even knows who they are, what their name is, and they're just disappeared. And think about what that does to communities, whether in Northern Ireland or in London or in Luton or elsewhere. And it just plays into the hands. I'm sorry, it's just so obvious to me that it is such a propaganda victory for people who don't believe in democracy and don't believe in human rights. And it's just the greatest own goal uh, of all, I think. On this stage yesterday, um, Lady Antonia Fraser uh, said that she was very sad that people didn't learn history properly um, and in order, you know, not just little snapshots in. Do you think that if actually there was a broader understanding in any country, but let's stick with the United Kingdom at the moment, of history and how things happened, then we would all be less complicit in the removal of our privacy, the removal of our civil liberties. You know, if we could see that in 1932 and 1933 in Nazi Germany, the language being used about certain sectors of society Absolutely. put them outside. Do you know what I mean? Do you think that history is actually, and education is the key to us not going along with Of course, them? education, and of course, history. And of co I mean, and that's why the politicians want to interfere with it so much. You know, they want to take citizenship out of the curriculum. They want to prescribe which books should and shouldn't be read. I mean, this is a live debate that we've had in, in this country in, in the last couple of years. You know, when Mr. Gove is now the UK Justice Secretary, but previously he was the Education Secretary, and we weren't to read To Kill a Mockingbird anymore. You know, it, um, so yeah, I mean, 
what was it somebody said to me the other day? Um, literature will help you to live and philosophy will help you to die. Maybe, maybe a good dose of history would actually help you rub along together and govern your, mm. govern your affairs a, a little bit better and at least attempt, make an attempt at not repeating again and again and again the mistakes of the past. And on the um, sometimes thorny issue of freedom of speech, mm -hmm. um, you've got a lovely phrase in, in the book where you talk about you know, absolute uh, f you know, freedom for the, not absolute liberty for the lion is tyranny for the lamb. Yeah. So, of course, in anything there are shades yeah. about how you balance this. Can you just say a little bit about the issues around freedom of speech, which yeah. take in gender and race and uh, sexual difference and uh, different abilities and all of these things, because that's yeah. very nuanced and difficult too, isn't it, to, to police? I Look, I don't, I don't, what I want to say about the Human Rights Act and the Convention and indeed any modern Bill of Rights or set of values actually in any community is it's not a computer program that gives you a perfect solution to any social or political problem, it's not. It's, it's, more like a, it's, it's more like a sort of compass that you use to help guide you. And we're just all trying to rub along together in shrinking, interconnected, global and local communities. And there are going to be rubbing points. There's, there's no question that there are going to be rubbing points. Now, what I feel about free speech is that it's a very, very important right. Of course, it's the lifeblood of, of democracy. You can't have democracy without freedom of speech. It can't be absolute. Okay. If I nick Kate Moss's latest best-selling book and put my name on it and say, that is now Shami Chakrabarti's taxidermist daughter, <laughs> um, that is not free speech, that is theft. And it must be so, because otherwise I am taking away, you know, I've really abrogated her rights and freedoms. Same goes for child pornography, same goes for me standing here and inciting violence or inciting crime. There are limits. Even in America, where they pretend that their constitution gives absolute free speech, it isn't absolute. There are some, you know, there are some boundaries, but in my view, they should be very, very limited because of the dangers of encroaching on free speech. But I would also say a right is not a duty. So I think I should legally have the right to stand up here now, be incredibly rude to Kate, to the whole audience, churlish, um, rude, swearing. And I don't think I should be arrested or prosecuted, but I don't suspect I would sell many books. And I might not be invited back. And I think we've got to remember kindness and politeness and humanity as as, as, as part of what binds us together. And I think sometimes the danger of very authoritarian societies is that they infantilize populations. If the only reason, if we're teaching our kids that the only reason to be kind or polite is to avoid an ASBO or to avoid being expelled from mm. school or whatever, you're teaching them nothing because we have to have something left to give each other by way of reciprocity and kindness and politeness. So I don't think everything can be about the law and what is prosecuted. I think that the law should be, should be very, very liberal when it comes to speech, but we should also remember sensitivities and kindness and politeness. And, so, and that, I think, is relevant to the Danish cartoons and to other things, in particular when you're getting into the faith space and the identity space. Yes, I have the right to insult you, but goodness me, a right is not a duty. Do you think um, that we as a society has lost idealism? Do you think that is that we've become fearful rather than idealistic? Because many of us looking around the room will have been doing some of, you know, marching and carrying placards, you know, back in the 60s and the 70s. And my experience then was that there was idealism, the idea that it was a good thing to think that you should try to change the world for the better. Do you think that's gone now, or do you see it in different communities? I think it's coming back. Around? I think it's coming back. <laughs> and I, one of the greatest things about my work, it's such a privilege, by the way, to do the work that I do. I mean, doing this for a living, you know? I mean, if I didn't, if I wasn't the director of Liberty, I'd be sitting around in the pub complaining about the state of rights and freedoms, and I get to do it with a microphone. I mean, it's, you know, what, what an enormous privilege. But one of the best bits of the job, I have to tell you, is traveling around the country, and in particular, um, schools and universities, and 
something is happening. I, th I, I think this post-war post on terror, post-Iraq generation around the country, Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, and beyond, they are, you know, they are radicalised. And there's a word you're not allowed to use anymore. <laughs> but in a good way. In that they have, frankly, if I were them, I'd be pretty pissed off with my generation. I'm in my mid-40s. Nicola Sturgeon's younger than me. Yvette Cooper's about the same age as me. You know, that's where I'm placed. And I frankly don't think that my generation has done such a brilliant job. And I think that the, you know, the teenagers and the students have a lot to be pretty, pretty cross about, actually. They didn't warm the planet. They didn't crunch the credit. They didn't start the wars, the real ones and the metaphysical ones. But they are going to be paying the bills. For quite, they want to, you know, we want to be kept in the lifestyle to which we've you know, become accustomed. Um, and, and, and I think that they are now ready to, you know, to take their moment. And, um, and I, I feel very optimistic about that. <laughs> and I'm going to go out to the audience in a moment, because I know there'll be lots of questions. But a last one from the stage uh, from me. You became the director of Liberty in, in 2003. And you describe yourself in the book in many ways, like all of us, you know, that you are a, a woman, you are the child of immigrants, you're a mother, you know, you, you list the, the ways that you would define yourself. But as the director of Liberty, what do you feel is your next big challenge? Or is it the existence of the fight that you've been going on all along? And what do you feel most proud of? Because you are actually a very optimistic person and you are a very light person in terms of the way you talk about these I'm a Marmite person. You're, <laughs> you are the <laughs> you know second I mean? it's kind of, yeah. most dangerous person in Britain, I've been told. Um, no, but I mean, that sense, you do have hope and you are very light in the way that you talk about things. So apart from the challenges, what have been your greatest moments of pride so far in the job? Uh, look, I mean, I work with some fantastic, mostly young people, lawyers and, and others, highly educated young people. I work with them and they're mates from posh universities go off to the city of London or elsewhere and make pots of money but my colleagues choose to come and do this work and they do it and they do it brilliantly I wouldn't give myself a job at Liberty now on the basis of my my qualifications compared to that and, and working with them you get to a stage in your life where you learn as much do you know what I mean? You learn as much from the younger people as you once did from your peers, and, and that is, that's an enormous privilege. Watching them, watching a nervous young lawyer you know, come to Liberty and go out and do their first TV appearance and then do it brilliantly and watch them grow into their... Lots of young women in particular, but not exclusively. That is just something that I take enormous um, pride in, as I'm sure we all do in our, in our families and, in, and, and, and elsewhere. In terms of hardcore victories, there have been some victories. Mm. We did defeat identity cards. We did defeat um, stop and search without suspicion. It took us 10 years. We had to go to the dreaded Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. But we did defeat um, Section 44 of the Terrorism Act, which was being used against Quaker peace protesters and you know just everybody other than terrorists. And, and yes, Mr. Brown, who had many qualities, had some weaknesses. This is the former Prime Minister, you understand. And he wanted to lock people up for 42 days. 42 days without charge. Not without trial, without charge. That is, you know, six weeks, a thousand hours in a police cell without being told why. And it was hard. It was very, very hard. And it, at times that they played dirty, but we won that, not in court, but actually um, in Parliament. And it was a campaign that united people from across the House, the left, the right, and, and, um, and so, yeah, I, 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 was, I was proud of that too. But the, the challenge, the big challenge is the threat to the Human Rights Act and the Convention on Human Rights. It's, a, it's one of those moments in history that we, have to, we just have to do the right thing or our children and our grandchildren will never forgive us. And indeed, that is why you wrote the book. Yep. Um, every um, penny from the book goes to Liberty to support the campaigning and moving forward with that, doesn't it? And, um, and there are, you have 80 writers for the 80th anniversary. D Rachel Holmes is, is here as well. Um, I'm one of them. There are many others of them. Because and we're a membership organisation. There we she are. Says. My that, colleagues that, will kill me if I don't say that. That is, I said that it, is guys. the point. Uh, before, um, so please do, if you're at all interested, having had a look at the book, um, do go to your favourite search engine and type 
um, type liberty, type liberty human rights, because I don't want you to be distracted by a smart, a smart Piccadilly department store that's well known for its print. <laughs> and, um, and if you are at all interested in, in, in this campaign to defend the human rights site, you'd be very welcome in, in our Liberty family. Do you know, I now have a brilliant idea for sponsorship. You in a floral frock from <laughs> Liberties. <laughs> no. I think that would get them rolling in. I no, think. I don't think so. You don't think so. Um, right, we've got time for some questions. Um, what I'm going to do, just to save your arms, is I'm going to take this part of the room, then this part, then this part, because otherwise the poor uh, young woman with the microphones will be charging around. So we're going to start there. Gentleman there, to start with. Thank you. Then lady in the front row after that, and then the gentleman in plaid, and then we'll move up. Thank you. As you pointed out at the beginning, these days we voluntarily surrender a large amount of data to largely American technology firms. Should we be worried about the amount of data they now hold on us, or should we re be reassured by Google telling us they will do no evil? Should we do a group? No, yeah, no you, you, you answer that. Answer that They're moving um, the microphones around. That was a beautiful rhetorical question, sir. And by the way, I do like the comments as well as the questions. And my favourite are the, the comments that are dressed up as questions. Well, you just, you just raise your voice at the end of the sentence like you're Australian or French. Of course we should, of course we should be worried. Um, you should be worried whether it's public or private sector. At the end of the day, you know, great big, this amassing of tons and tons of intimate information over entire populations, not over suspects. I don't have any problem with targeted surveillance of people who are suspect, subject to appropriate legal checks and balances. That is the traditional approach to criminal investigation and law enforcement and, and espionage. I have no problem with it. But this is the blanket collection of data from entire populations. Now, if she were here, Mrs May, the Home Secretary, would say, Shami, the innocent have nothing to fear, right? Have you heard that? Nothing to hide, nothing to fear from this kind of, this kind of power. Um, and she would also say um, that the internet um, is a dangerous place. Bad stuff happens there. Crimes are perpetrated and conspired there. And, she, and she, she'd be right about that. But I would also say to her that the family home is quite a dangerous place. These beautiful old houses in Edinburgh that have stood for hundreds of years. Uncomfortable thing to say, but a lot of crime happens in domestic dwellings. Always has, all over the world. Minor crime, more serious crime. Violent crime, sex crime, tax evasion, whatever. It is happening in people's homes. We now have digital technology that would allow us, I have no doubt, to say, let's put a camera and a microphone in everybody's home, right? because the innocent have nothing to fear. Do we feel comfortable with that? Don't worry, we won't look at the stuff. We'll just collect it, and then if you become suspect after the event, we will check the, um, the entry for that day or that week or that year in your home. Do you feel comfortable with that? If you don't feel comfortable with that for whatever reason, you should not feel comfortable with this blanket data retention. And it's governments and companies working together sometimes by private cosy deal. This is revealed by Edward Snowden, or sometimes by legislation. It doesn't really matter whether it's taken by the government or taken by, it's about holding and keeping too much information for dubious purposes for too long. And we need to, I, I believe we need to push back. And you know, for the younger generation, some of them are living far more intimately online than in their bedrooms where it's just smelly underwear and socks and stuff like that, but, but the tablets and the smartphones and the computers, that is presenting a picture of somebody's, somebody's thoughts and feelings and mental health concerns and, and who they're contacting and what they're reading and their sexuality and all the rest of it. And, that should, and I don't believe that the innocent have nothing to fear. Tell that to my friend Doreen Lawrence. Right? Not only were the police not investigating her son's murder, they, they were investigating her instead because she launched a campaign that embarrassed them. Yeah. So, Thank so that's my long-winded answer to your question. Thank you. There's a lady in the front row, and then there's a gentleman there, and then another hand up, please, over here. What do you think the UK society will look like in five years' time? What do I think the UK society will look like in five years' time? Thank oh, you. There's a quick, what will UK society look like in five years' time? 
This is a very tricky question to ask, answer north of the border, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> go on, that's, like, go. that's like the trick question of the day. That, I, um, I choose to be optimistic. I choose to be optimistic. And so I think that we could get over... Sometimes you have to have the fight. There, this is an existential moment for rights and freedoms, for whether we, be, whether we are optimistic, whether we are going to embrace our diversity, our liberal values, our human rights values, whether we're going to be internationalists or narrow and inward-looking. But it's not going to drift. One way, or another, this, one way or another, this fight is going to happen. And we save the human rights act and we build more progressive politics and thinking, and, or we don't. And I'm going to choose to be optimistic because I, I have sources of, for optimism. Because I, I go and speak to lovely people like you all over the country, and I think actually some of the politicians have been out of touch with the with with, actual, with public feeling. The yeah. newspapers, the politicians, a lot of them are out of touch with 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 the groundswell of humanity in this country. People who do care about wretched people drowning, um, you know, in the Mediterranean or or, or wherever. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that in five years' time we will be in a happier, more positive optimistic, compassionate country that is more at ease with itself and more at ease with its place in the world. Well, we will be back here to hear that be proved true, I hope. Gentlemen there, and then another hand up here, please, so the microphone can go. Yeah. Should I shut down my Facebook page and throw my smartphone into the water of Leith? Well, um, I have... Thank you. A smartphone. I do not have a Facebook page, but that's just my choice. My, um, Liberty has a Facebook page, but um, but I, I, I've, I'm seduced by the cool technology too. Um, I don't. I think you can take advice and and have decent privacy settings, but you also need to. No privacy setting is is, is perfect, and just I think people need to think about what they are sharing and who they're sharing it with, and. I do have concerns about this idea that we should all be broadcasting the whole time. This distinction, the distinction between communicating between your friends and your family and broadcasting to the world seems to be quite blurred, and I think that's something to, that's something to think about. Privacy is not absolute, and we do make trade-offs, as I have done, by having a smartphone because of the convenience that it, that it gives me, and it, it, it's, it's incredible convenience. Um, but it, comes at, it does come at, at, a, at a price. And we need to be thinking about this compromise and this trade-off in our personal lives, in our family lives, and as a society. Because, because the truth is we all have not something to hide but to protect. And, and life and society with no privacy whatsoever is a world without intimacy or dignity or trust between human beings. And that is my answer to Theresa May. Lovely. Thank you. There's a question there, and then the microphone up there. Hi, thank you very much. Um, you started off by talking about language and the war on terrorism. What do you think politicians have to do to move forward in view of the fact that one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter? <laughs> thank you. That's a fantastic, fantastic question. Um, could pass it along, please. One problem that we have in the UK, and this is a UK problem because this is UK legislation, it's not limited to, to England and Wales, and of course with the terrorism legislation it usually is UK-wide. One problem we have is the definition of terrorism is far too broad. Now, I accept that if... Um, I accept that one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, and that you can't really get around that because they're going to be causes that you support and causes that you don't support at different times in history throughout the world. And, you know, there's not a magic answer to that. I myself consider myself, you know, a human rights activist. I passionately believe in the rule of law and in democracy. But if I weren't in a democracy, I'm not going to tell you that there wouldn't be certain circumstances where even I wouldn't take up arms against an oppressive dictatorship if that was the only choice open to me. However, I do personally think that ethically, even if you do that, there are certain things you should not do. You know, when you take up arms against an oppressive state, you don't throw your 
ethics away and your morals away, your ethics and morals become even more important and you don't get into the targeting of civilians, etc., etc. But in terms of the definition that we have in UK legislation, it is so broad that it covers political and ideologically motivated crimes against property and people. Um, it would include political graffiti could be described as terrorism. It has speech crimes that are so broad that if I stand here now and say something not much worse than what I've just said. If I say, you know, I don't know, Robert Mugabe is a terrible dictator, the only way that he can be brought down is by force. I'm in danger here at the Edinburgh Book Festival of, com of, of, of perpetrating um, a speech crime under terrorism legislation. So I personally think that the definition of, of terror offences needs to be tightened up. Because one of the themes in my book is that overbroad laws lead to terrible injustice. And Gary McKinnon is suddenly going to be extradited to the US and, and you know, all sorts of people are branded terrorists who are peace protesters and so on. So we need to tighten up the definition. And the politicians are responsible for that. They can't blame the police. They need to take responsibility as legislators to tightening the definition of terrorism. So it, doesn't, it covers at the moment GM crop protesters mm. if they mess about with the crops or, as I say, criminal damage that is graffiti, all of these lesser crimes, or if they happen to be politically motivated, end up as terror offensive, and I, I think that's a mistake. And then they also need to adjust their thinking and their rhetoric. And it's, it's very difficult for them because they are afraid of something happening on their watch and being blamed, and they want to promise magic solutions to intractable or long-term problems. You know, something bad happens. A bomb goes off. There's a murder, and Kate wants to shut me up. Um, <laughs> I don't. What we? And I turn my butt to her and, and say so. And I get your microphone no, out, and then that's all over. I Tristan. just want. I want Jed Bartlett and Borgen to have a love child, and that to be prime minister. Excellent. That's the best point. Right. There's a gentleman there. Then there's a gentleman there. Then I'd like a couple of hands up here because I want to make sure. Uh, young woman there. Thank you with the red, and the lady there. Thank you. Okay. It's really great to have you here. It's the first time I've had hope in 25 or far more years. I was going to ask you about Tony Blair. Oh, I like a, you. A former peace, <laughs> Tony Blair, our former peace envoy in the um. Middle East and uh, human rights, etc. But as you started to speak, I was almost starting, I was going to clap because I haven't heard anybody, even a Labour Party MP or anybody, speaking like that about the people down the bottom. I thought that should be what Labour Party was all about. Looking after the poor, looking after the needy. But not now. So, apart from Nicola Sturgeon, I'm not a nationalist, but she's okay. But, uh, <laughs> I know what you mean. It's very... Yeah. Yeah, that's the N-word for you, you see. Uh, there's a gentleman there, he's got a microphone, and I'd like to take a, some voices from younger people. So, could you keep your hand up, young woman over there? Thank you. Uh, sorry. Go for it. You've got the microphone. Go. <laughs> Whose side are the police on? Are they protecting our civil liberties hmm. or damaging them? I love these Edinburgh questions. Eh? <laughs> I've got so many fivers to give out afterwards. <laughs> um, so um, I don't think that the gentleman there, I'll buy you a drink afterwards and you know, we'll talk privately. But, um, but um, as for who... Which side of the police on? That's really interesting. I don't believe in the police as a monolith, because there are individ you know at the end of the day they're working men and women in the police force, and, and, and there is a no there is a noble tradition of people who go into policing because they are they want to protect and serve the community that they live in, and that is the best tradition of policing in our country. And um, but they are from the people. They are frail and they are human like the rest of us and if you and if and so they will carry the prejudices that we all carry and if you give them too much unchecked power it will be abused that's what happens with politicians with police officers with journalists you know look at all the great houses and institutions Is that mob rule essentially that the that there's there's a critical mass so many people and they it's not set each other it off. It can be mob rule, particularly in public order situations, as we've seen with you know the miners' strike and with you know 1934, my organisation was formed 
because the hunger marchers were beaten up by the Metropolitan Police in Hyde Park, 1934. There's a long tradition of this, but there are also individual police officers who stop me in the street and say, keep up the good work, mm. and, 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 and who do believe in the rule of law. And now they find that they're subject to more and more political control from elected police and crime commissioners and this, that and the other, politicians who want to direct specific operations. So it's complex. I don't believe in monoliths. I believe in people and institutions and values and checks and balances. And I think that is my approach to the police. Lovely. Thank you. Uh, yeah, hi. Thank you for a very fascinating talk. Um, you mentioned uh, the Norwegian response to the Norwegian terrorist attacks earlier mm. and the contrast between the two. I'm Norwegian myself. I was in Norway at the time. Um, but we see now in Norway that even only four years after the attacks that you have more hidden surveillance, you have more you know, police surveillance and everything. Do you think this fight against surveillance is possible to win or can it just be delayed? Fascinating contribution. Um, you know, I, I was worried when you said I'm actually Norwegian, and you're talking. I thought you were going to say that you're talking a load of bollocks. It's just been, <laughs> you know, it hasn't. Because then you would strip me of the hope. I, I do think that the initial um, political response was was very moving, and uh, and that's why I quote it in the book because it's a contrast with the Bush, Blair. We're gonna. The rules of the game are changing. Really, it, it was a game, was it? You know, innocent people die and it's a game. And what are the rules? You know, our human rights. So um, as for your point about surveillance, I, I think one of the problems is that it's not an absolute. I'm not against surveillance. I just want it to be lawful and proportionate. And I, want, I think what we need is, is a different public conversation about it. Which, and it's very, it's very culturally sensitive, actually, because, for example, there are all sorts of democracies in Europe where people are really comfortable with identity cards. They think it's fine to carry an identity card, but they think that we're crazy because we have too many cameras. So everybody values privacy, but they kind of value it in, in, in different ways. And I think that you know, being against surveillance is, is like being against the ocean. The ocean can be a place where you, where you fish or you overfish. It can be a place where you happily swim or a place where you drown. And so I'm not against surveillance, but I want us to have like, more sophisticated local community and national and international conversations about what proportionate surveillance looks like in the 21st century, who decides and what kind of checks and balances we have. And one final thing, on Edward Snowden, who's branded a terrorist and a traitor and whatever, whether you agree with me or with Theresa May on the levels of blanket surveillance and whether they're proportionate or not, you know, you, we can disagree about that. Surely you have to agree that these structures and capacities should be subject to public debate and democratic control. And what Snowden revealed is that this surveillance state and mechanism was built without political debate and legal control on both sides of the Atlantic. It was, we're not even talking about human rights and democracy, we're talking about the rule of law. And that's why, in my view, Snowden is a, is a genuine whistleblower and a, and a public interest hero. And without him, we wouldn't even be having the, the informed debate that we now have the potential to have. Thank you. And the final question from the gentleman at the back. Uh, very much. I very much enjoy your presentation. I, like many of us, uh, come from a family uh, of immigrants due to persecution. When I look now at what's happening in displaced people's camps all over the world, millions and millions of people have fled from persecution and left in hopeless circumstances. Behind them are an enormous number of people who want economic uh, migration. What are the human rights of, of those people? Do they deserve the right to come to Europe given the fact that we're a relatively small country, how can we control this pressure on immigration of people who have uh, very important rights to, to escape the persecution that they face? Thank you. Um, it, it's a big question, but uh, I think you should look at chapter six of my book, is the first answer. But Perfect I, answer. But I also think we need to better connect what happens over there with what we do over here. There is no point weeping hot tears for people suffering persecution. And isn't it funny that when the weapons of mass destruction evaporate and suddenly human rights abuses become a justification for wars over there, but never for refugee protection over here. And I think that little, that little irony needs to be sorted out. 
That was the briefest answer. I'm entirely unprepared for that. No, no. Um, um, I th I'm, I'm so sorry that we couldn't get round all of the questions. Um, but just to say, I think on behalf of everybody here, um, it has been absolutely fascinating listening to you talk about these different areas. Uh, the thing for me um, about reading the book is that it is a beautiful book, and it is beautifully written. And one of the things that I came away at the end of it was, if only we can think and listen more, not rush in always with a point of view before we have got all the facts, then maybe we would all just be better able to help those who are in need of our help. And hopefully there'd be people to help us when we needed it. So it is a really beautifully written book, and that doesn't always get said here. And as I said, all of the uh, proceeds for it do go to Liberty to help Shami and her colleagues, and I suspect many of you in this room, uh, to keep speaking out for people who cannot uh, speak out for themselves. We must finish. Um, I'd like to thank everybody in the venue, particularly the young women who sorted out the problem there, and thank you for that. I'd like to thank Jo Ross for her interpreting and signing. Uh, Shami will be signing books next door if you uh, wish to do them. Um, some of you will see me back in quite soon uh, to talk about the book that Shami Chakrabarti wrote, The Taxidermist's Daughter. Ladies, <laughs> Shami <laughs> Chakrabarti. <laughs> More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.